Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. Concerns notwithstanding, researchers across the nation are tuning in and turning on to psychedelics a few generations after psychologist Timothy Leary unintentionally stigmatized treatment. them. Until now, the manufacturing and consumption of this drug has been illegal under both state and federal law. Right now, the care. Proponents point to studies from research institutions that show that psilocybin can assist those dealing with anxiety, depression, or even addiction. Treatment, those so-called magic mushrooms can be used under this measure in a therapeutic setting. As awareness of mental health issues grows across the state, experts are looking for effective treatments. Well, Measure 109 would make Oregon the first state in the country to legalize psilocybin therapies, which experts say show promise. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. In the last installment of our mini-series, The Fungus Effect, we spoke with Robin Carhart-Harris about the neuroscience of psychedelic experiences and the research showing the impressive therapeutic potential for psychedelic therapy. That research has been crucial in helping activists push for the legalization and decriminalization of psychedelics around the country. And in the 2020 election, Oregon decriminalized all drugs, including psilocybin. But legalization doesn't create a framework for safe and ethical psychedelic therapy. That's where Measure 109 came in, the brainchild of longtime therapists Tom and Cherie Eckert. My interest in psychedelics goes back a ways. I've dabbled and always kind of understood the healing power of plant medicines. Cherie was later to it. I kind of introduced her to psychedelics, although when she was young, she had a near-death experience that informed her in relation to just transformational states of consciousness. It had a huge impact on her as a young person. She felt that she left her body and kind of witnessed herself hemorrhaging below and then <gasps> back into her body and was breathing and living again. And it changed her life. And she had a lot of trauma growing up. And this was when she was 17 years old. It was after mm-hmm. uh, labor and going into sepsis. And oh, wow. So she always had this notion, like if people could just die for a minute, <laughs> they would see the world quite differently. And being that that's a a tall order, I had in my mind what psychedelics had shown me in the past. And so I kind of snuck it in there, you know, I'm like, Siri, you know, there's this experience. It sounds a a little bit similar, right? You don't have to necessarily have a near-death experience physically to have ego dissolution and a sense of the other side in your consciousness. And she was willing to jump in and explore that with me. And she quickly was on board with this idea that psychedelics are important in relation to potentially mental health and more broadly, mental wellness and maturation and transformation. And so we began exploring psychedelics ourselves. And then we tuned into the research that was happening at places like Johns Hopkins and NYU and UCLA. An article came out by Michael Pollan called The Trip Treatment. In the New Yorker, it was before his great book Mm -hmm. that covered everything. And that just 
kicked up a dialogue between Sheree and I as therapists. Once we understood the breadth and depth of the research happening, we got excited. Because as any therapist will tell you, change is hard and transformation is hard and takes a lot of work and there's no guarantees. And so we're always looking for ways to help our clients, of course. Well, first of all, like, why can't we do this? We're just basically offended by prohibition. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> the research was showing, at minimum, safety under careful conditions, right? So why can't we do that? Shri asked me about specializing, and I thought, well, if psychedelics were available, that's something I could get behind. Hmm. And she's like, what would it take to do that? Hmm. Well, <laughs> what would it take to do that? I guess it would take transforming our narrative around psychedelics and is ultimately legalizing a framework to allow it to happen. And we were passionate about promoting change in mental health care, and we're passionate about the health of Oregonians. So it all added up to taking the first steps. We didn't take it lightly. It felt like a huge and daunting responsibility because we knew we'd go the distance, but we took it on. And that was back in 2015. Did you have any experience with activism before this? Nope, not activists, <laughs> not politicians, just therapists that are passionate about healing modalities. Tom and Cherie needed an activist, and they found a veteran of drug policy advocacy, Sam Chapman. Tom and Cherie, this has been a vision of theirs that goes back almost six years now. They saw prestigious institutions doing this type of research really lays the groundwork and provides some political coverage to a great degree that mm. says, look, don't trust me. Look at these institutions. These are the same institutions that are providing the most up-to-date COVID tracker in the world, right? I mean, these are people we trust for all of different kinds of things. And so about two years ago, it started to elevate to another level. They got connected with Paul Stamets. They got connected with David Bronner and the Bronner family. Real financial backing started to come into play. And that allowed Tom and Shree to kind of open up the playbook a little more and to start making some of their first key hires. So I was the first campaign hire. And I think part of that was my drug policy history in general, you know, my work with cannabis. In 2013, I co-authored the law in Oregon that legalized medical cannabis dispensaries and helped craft time, place, and manner regulations for that industry. And so I just had a lot of experience creating a new program that was going to have a lot of hurdles. What was done right with cannabis? What was done right with cannabis? That's a very short, <laughs> that's a very, very short list. Uh -oh. <laughs> I'm not the kind of person that is ever really interested in taking a bunch of time, like patting ourselves on the back. So I just don't think about what we got, <laughs> right? I think about what we did wrong and how we can correct our wrongs in future opportunities. And the biggest missed opportunity from cannabis legalization was ensuring that the communities that were most disproportionately impacted by cannabis being illegal had an opportunity not just to ensure that they have access to cannabis, but ensure that they can participate in the program and within the licensing structure. Right. Right. And so, you know, as one of the first states that moved forward in this, we just saw the economic benefits for the state overall and we rushed it. Right. And we made a lot of arguments that really accelerated the timeline in which we were making rules and regulations for cannabis. And, and at that time, there just wasn't enough people involved in the conversations to be able to flag for the regulators to say, hey, 
the train is leaving the station, but there's a lot of people missing in their seats right now. In our home state, where the cannabis business is booming, only 3% of cannabis business owners are black, according to the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board. As you might imagine, conviction rates for drug possession are skewed in the opposite direction. In King County, where Seattle is located, over 40% of all drug possession convictions from 1999 to 2019 involved black people. Washington and other states where cannabis has been legalized are now trying to rectify these disparities. And so that is probably the biggest missed opportunity from cannabis that we are ensuring that does not happen very early on in this process. And so within the campaign, we initiated this process and these conversations. And the sole purpose was to create a space where these individuals could be centered and elevated in driving the conversation about what equitable access actually looks like, right? Because if we are not doing that, in my opinion, we did all this for nothing. If we can't serve the people who stand to benefit the most, then all of this was for nothing. One of the key differences between the effort to legalize cannabis and Measure 109 for psilocybin is that while cannabis has legitimate medical uses, they are mostly physical, pain relief, muscle relaxation, and appetite stimulation. But psilocybin has the potential for broad and powerful mental health benefits. And in Oregon, that was particularly resonant. There's been a mental health crisis in America for some time now. And here in Oregon, that crisis has been even more acute. And this is prior to COVID and the pandemic. And so we know that here in Oregon, there's a unique need and demand for new options for people who are struggling with depression, anxiety, and addiction. And that's not to say that this is a panacea. It's absolutely not. But it is an incredibly promising, powerful tool to give people the new option for hope and healing where other currently available alternatives have fallen short. The inadequacy of those currently available alternatives was also a big motivating factor for the Eckerts. Early on in my schooling back in the 90s, working on a doctorate in clinical psychology, I became rather disillusioned because I felt the drift of psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy toward kind of pharma-driven, medicalized approach never sat well with me. I never thought that the medical model is a dominant model is a good fit for matters of the psyche and the spirit. So when we started thinking about psilocybin as a modality, one of our inspirations to do a ballot initiative rather than kind of wait for things to develop on the FDA level was to really think a, a lot about how to integrate psychedelics into the culture in a way that makes sense. You know, it's philosophically sound because it's different, right? Psilocybin is not a pharma drug. <laughs> there is the physiological difference of the substances, right? One is generally a synthetic product that has been created in a lab and is meant to be taken on a daily basis. And the other can be found in nature. It's a mushroom. It's a natural compound. It's been around, obviously, forever and been used in ceremonial context for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And if you want to just look at it through the Western lens, there's a lot of science behind it. It's going back to the 50s and 60s, showing right. safety and efficacy when it's carefully approached. 
the side effects of one to two psilocybin therapy sessions in comparison to a daily SSRI, for example, are huge. I mean, they're night and day. The side effects that you get from a daily prescription, you will be dealing with potentially for the rest of your life. That's not to say there aren't potentially negative side effects for psilocybin therapy, but we know what they are. We know that in a regulated and supervised environment that we can mitigate those effects. And with the proper training and certification of facilitators, we can help people overcome and break through a lot of the historical familial trauma that has been passed down. That often, as I'm sure you saw within the prison system, many people don't even know that they have, mm-hmm. right? They never had any opportunity to really do a therapeutic session, right? You know, the pharmaceutical model also more or less is kind of a blindfolded one size fits all. Mm-hmm. It's a scaled model. So in any scaled model, you're inherently going to have some people that fall through the cracks. And the other thing that's sort of obvious, but should be just named, is that it's an experience, right? The agent of change is the experience itself. So there's a subjective, personal quality to it, which to me puts it in a therapeutic hmm. realm rather than a pharma realm. Do you think that the experiential nature of it is part of why the research shows that oftentimes it only takes a couple doses, a couple experiences, rather than the pharmaceutical model, which is take this pill every day for the rest of your life. I do. I do. I think, you know, with the pharma drugs, you're taking a pill each day to tweak your brain chemicals, and that's what keeps you in a certain place. And so when you discontinue that, there's a a likelihood that you'll go back to where you started unless you've done therapeutic work to make advancements. But with psilocybin, it's drawing on your inner resources. It's drawing on something inside of you. Now, there's a chemical modulation, obviously, to open up the big experience. So it is this interesting hybrid. But ultimately, it's the experience you have in consciousness that is activating the change. We're talking about a whole spectrum of mental health problems arise out of the mind getting stuck in loops Mm -hmm. and patterns, whether it's via trauma or depressive cycles or addictions or a whole number of mental health issues are related to mental rigidity. I think there's kind of two pieces to that. There's one, being able to loosen up the mind enough to be able to step out of the loops and patterns. So just a reprieve from that Mm. daily stuckness, right, is therapeutic. So just escaping the patterns is therapeutic. But then, of course, not only that, you get this experience. Shaking the snow globe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You step away from your usual way of perceiving the world, and you open up to a new way of experiencing that is unusual and inspiring in a lot of cases, sometimes scary. But just by having a very different experience, you come back with that knowledge. You know, a good analogy, I think it was Mark Hayden, a friend of mine who said this to me, that imagine you're climbing a mountain and, you know, you go out with this intention to reach the peak, but then the clouds come down and it's overcast day and you don't see the peak and the climbing is just drudgery, right? And you forget why you're doing it and Mm -hmm. it just becomes painful. And then one day the clouds part The sun shines down on this beautiful peak and you see it again and you're re-inspired. Well, the clouds come back, but now you have this sense of what you're doing again. 
Sometimes psychedelics work like that. They give you a peak experience that pulls you out of the malaise, and with integration afterwards, you can really make meaning of, of your path again. And so that's why it's therapy. That's why it's not just a from the outside in medical intervention. It's a it's an art as well. The deeper you get into the transformational and healing potential of psilocybin, its safety record, its lack of side effects, it starts to seem like such a no-brainer that people should have access to this. But the average person isn't deep in the weeds and up on the latest research. Figuring out how to reach those voters would be a challenge. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Canon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. We started the campaign, it's like you're preaching to the choir, but then you realize actually what you're trying to do is talk to an entire state. Yeah. And 80% of those people have never heard of the word psilocybin. They don't even have a starting point. When I hear Oregon voter, I think of soccer moms and grandparents. Right. That's who we're talking about, right? And I think that is one of the most important aspects for anyone considering to move a piece of legislation or a bill like this forward is. Who is your audience? What is the message that relates and that will resonate with that specific audience? And who is the best messenger to carry the message to that audience? If you can define a couple of those aspects, there's always two to three primary audiences that will make or break your campaign. That's the equation. And with the campaign, we started, not surprisingly, kind of behind the eight ball. You know, nobody... Mm -hmm thought this was something that was going to happen. I'll be honest. When they first shared this vision with me, I told them they were crazy <laughs> because I'm like the political realist, right? It's my job to stand in the middle of the intersection and work with the passionate activists who have dreams of grandeur and pie in the sky ideas and say, cool, we're going to take 22% of that. And that's what <laughs> we're going to be able to do, right? Tom and Cherie knew exactly what they were doing. And I'm not the only one who told them that this was crazy and they continue to move forward. And then I started to see not only how this was not crazy, but this is the opportunity to change the paradigm in which healthcare exists in general and how we even think about healthcare. Yeah. And that, that foundational evolution in my own personal thinking hmm. was a massive revolution and me understanding not only the opportunity that we had here in Oregon, but the opportunity we have globally. The idea is to create a framework in which these experiences can be optimized and done safely mm -hmm. and in such a way that real benefit is achieved. And to do that in a framework that stands on its own foundation, it's a wellness model. Anyone can access this modality anyone who can safely benefit. So there's a screening process to ensure that the folks that this could endanger, say if you have psychotic disposition or mm -hmm. certain 
medication conflicts and stuff like that. You got to have careful screening to ensure that you're the right fit. But aside from that, we want to create as much access as we can. And that's exactly why we got rid of, for the first time ever, qualifying conditions, Hmm. right? The only reason why we've ever had qualifying conditions for a cannabis perspective is for political viability. In other words, you can come in for spiritual reasons. You can come in to access creativity. You can come in to just better understand your own mind. Or you can come in and address specific issues like addictions or depression. Across the whole provider spectrum, there's essential training. There's practice standards, ethical standards, safety standards. That's what they set out to sell Oregon voters on. Not to make magic mushrooms legal for anyone to buy, but to make psilocybin therapy legal through a regulated licensing framework with trained practitioners. You can start to see real progress. And we saw that through our campaign where we had 30 second TV ads of a Navy SEAL, a state senator who happens to be a doctor who has also suffered from depression, right? A doctor who specializes in palliative care and is a hospice director that works with terminally ill cancer patients. These are the people that you want out there talking about the need and that everyone knows someone who stands to benefit from this, if not ourselves, right? I've worked in end-of-life care for 28 years. I was a Navy SEAL for 18 and a half years. I was medically retired from PTSD. It made every- So I support Measure 109 to allow psilocybin therapy for terminally ill people suffering from depression. Had I not found psilocybin therapy, I wouldn't be alive. It becomes even more of a powerful argument when you can kind of flip the script with an audience that would think normally like, okay, like, but law enforcement's your number one opposition, right? Like they hate drugs, they hate you, they hate this. And it's actually, that's not the case at all. We had zero law enforcement opposition. When we put up a former sheriff who says, I did psilocybin therapy and it changed my life, people do a double take, right? They Mm -hmm. have to stop and be like, whoa, okay, this is not what I expected. And now I'm paying attention. And we did focus groups, right? We'd start with just a random group of people. And they would be more or less against the idea when you give them just like, oh, we're trying to legalize psychedelics. All their fears come up. But then just a little bit of information. Mm -hmm. It's therapeutic. There's science behind it. There's a safe way to do it. We're going to do it in careful settings with trained people. Once they get those basic points, It's nine out of 10. That's the formula in which we were able to succeed with Measure 109 here in Oregon. And not only succeed, but we put an exclamation mark at the end of it. And then we ended up with 56% of the vote, 1.3 million people voting yes on psilocybin therapy. 56% is nothing to sneeze at for the first time of ever trying to create a psilocybin therapy program in the country and arguably the world. Amidst the tumultuous emotions on November 3rd, 2020, This was a bright spot, a triumph for drug reform and mental health. Tom and Cherie, Sam, and the many others supporting the 109 campaign celebrated. Then, just over a month later, tragedy struck. My wife, Cherie, passed away in December, tragically. I'm sorry. Yeah, she was really the heart of this whole initiative. She and I were 100% together on this whole project as we were in life and in everything else. So obviously a big grieving process around that. And 
She's very much in the spirit of all that I'm doing, but also I think the community at large is really keeps her energy close as we develop the program that she and I started. One direct way that I'm advancing her legacy as well as addressing an important issue is developing the Sri Eckert Foundation, and that is to support equitable access to training and services, and also just making sure that every corner of the state has access to psilocybin therapy. You know, when we were making the decision to move forward with the initiative five years ago, Sri and I went out in the woods and uh, had a psilocybin experience for the purpose of making a decision as to whether we would move forward with the initiative. And during that experience, we went up to Mount Rainier, which I think is in your neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. And you know how beautiful it is up there. And took a beautiful hike and then came back and we're sitting at a campfire. And night fell and we sat quietly for a long time. And I remember what was going through my head as I was beginning to think about this intention. My consciousness opened up to kind of like a space a thousand years wide. And I started thinking about like, what are the future historians going to think about our human condition today? Like, what are they going to notice? What's going to stick out to them? I don't think they're going to care too much about our stupid politics or hmm. technologies. Or I don't think that's what's going to stick out. I think what's going to stick out is our lack of connection with the resources of consciousness. If we're going to make it, if we're going to have historians in a thousand years, yeah. if we're going to survive as a species and flourish, it's going to be because we reconnected in some profound way. And that's inwardly, but also I think we are all each articulations of the cosmos itself. We're drawn out of nature. And so to reconnect with nature, we have to reconnect through ourselves back into nature. And so these were kind of the lofty ideas I was having at the time on a psilocybin trip. And in the midst of all that, Sheree turned to me. And just as background, Sheree and I couldn't have children ourselves. But she turned to me and she said, I'm pregnant. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? She's like, the, the campaign will be our baby. Aww. Yeah. This is our baby now. And we're going to raise it. We're going to raise it together. And as soon as I heard that, then it was a done deal. I was already coming into embracing, taking this on. And then when she put it in her own language like that, and we did. We raised the baby. We really protected it, cared for it, watched it grow. Yeah. And now I think it's off to college. I'm not sure. Well, that's that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Makes me want to cry. Now that Tom and Cherie's brainchild is off to college, there's a lot of practical questions to answer. I get the question all the time, what is this actually going to look like? Like paint a picture. What does the office look like? Those kinds of things. There's a lot of creative freedom within Measure 109 for a spectrum of service centers to exist. And I can tell you for a fact that we are going to see them and straight up 
white light lab coat stethoscope hospital <laughs> hospice type of environments as we should there's a large population of people that are never going to trust it unless it is in the system that they interact with now with people that they have already built a rapport with right so we need mm -hmm. to be able to serve that population on the flip side there's going to be more of the personal wellness and growth model, right? Just because you don't have a diagnosis doesn't mean that you can't benefit from psilocybin therapy. Right. Just as going to talk therapy doesn't mean that you're necessarily suffering from one thing or another. And so I think that there's also going to be a personal wellness retreat style model hmm. that does exist today, right? This synthesis uh, out in the Netherlands is a perfect example. They provide many different types of services in addition to psilocybin therapy in terms of yoga and meditation. And, you know, there might be acupuncture. Hmm. And in the middle, there's going to be a no frills, no bells and whistles therapist style office. And mm -hmm. that's going to be much more focused on the relationship that the client or the patient has with the facilitator, right? And they don't need everything else. They just need the services themselves. And that is that relationship is really the core of why people are seeking those services, right? So, you know, long story short, we're going to have a varying degrees of models as mm. I think we should, right? That stands to help people access what they need on their terms better than saying, we're going to force you into this medical model that historically right. so many people can't access now. Are we going to take from some of the traditional healthcare realm? Absolutely. But we're also going to take from the indigenous historic context in which we know psilocybin ceremony has been incredibly effective mm -hmm. and utilized safely in the right environment for thousands of years. Right. And so just because you're a 30-year ER doctor with all the accolades and academic experience doesn't mean you know anything about psilocybin or its historical right. use or the context. And simultaneously, just because you've been doing good indigenous ceremonial work or underground work for the last 30 years doesn't mean that you necessarily have the proper ethical training to be able to offer services within a regulated environment that ensures patient and client safety are top of mind. And so that is this new path that we're creating here in Oregon that isn't an either or. We took the hard path in creating something new and our task is a Herculean one. And that's exactly why it is so important that we get this right from a rulemaking and implementation perspective. This is our opportunity to seize and setting the golden standard for other states and countries to follow. And that's what we're trying to build. And that's what we're going to build here in Oregon in a very interesting way. This is a standalone licensure system where we're going to develop standards and ethics and safety with the backbone of accountability mm. and bring this above ground. And I think it'll make quite an impact. After the initiative passed, we entered into a two-year development period in which we basically fill out the program. The legislation itself was really detailed, but it left lots of things open intentionally because what we wanted to do was bring in the best minds available and kind of hash out certain things, right? For example, what's the content of a training program? How do we approve training programs? How do we license facilitators? What's a product center? What are all those details? And so the way we thought to do that was have the governor appoint an advisory board of experts to work on this stuff. 
And we wrote into the initiative that, well, we need a therapist, we need somebody representing the tribes, we need a naturopath, you know, you name the different kinds of folks that you'd like to have on this board. And so we did that. So it'll be a diverse, interesting board representing a variety of disciplines that are relevant to this new model. I'm the chair of the training program as well as the chair of the overall advisory board. The training programs will be independent programs that will be popping up in Oregon in the next year or so. Cool. So there's a lot of work. It's a complex thing, but we're on track and we have a date now, and that's May 13th, that the Oregon Health Authority plans to have their rules completed and ratified around training programs specifically. That will allow an application process to begin for training programs to be approved by the OHA, and that will start the ball rolling. So hopefully by next summer, those training programs will be enrolling students. In your ideal vision, who can try to be a facilitator? You do not have to be credentialed medically. The training to become a facilitator is intensive. It's its own thing. There are skills involved to being a facilitator and holding space with someone in a way that creates the uh, affirming environment that's necessary for these optimized experiences. It actually takes a lot of self-work. At the core of the training is learning how to be non-directive. These experiences are, often they are beautiful and unfold in a bunch of glory, but sometimes they're difficult. And so to have the presence of mind to work with difficult experiences, that takes some skill. And so there's a a good amount of training, probably a 10-month program somewhere in there. But yeah, anyone can access that training. And while Eckert is spearheading the OHA Advisory Board and the training program for facilitators, Chapman is continuing the education effort. So in my new role as the executive director for the Healing Advocacy Fund, which is a newly formed nonprofit, it's a continuation of the campaign, right? Just because the campaign's over and we won does not mean we get to stop educating. I would argue that we have to educate even more now with the regulators and the powers that be to understand exactly what we stand to gain, what we stand to lose by getting this right. And so my job essentially is to float around at the 5,000, 10,000 foot level. So you know, when the federal agencies want to get involved and have a say, that's my job to continue to protect the intent and the spirit of Measure 109 as passed by Oregon voters. And so it's, again, striking this balance of training and safety and affordability and equitable access, not just from services, but equitable access to licensing is one of the big lessons that we took from cannabis as well. And we are doing everything we can to recognize that up front right now and to make sure that the regulators understand that every single subject that we're going to talk about needs to be examined through a lens of affordability and equity. So my job is really to be a resource and to keep the train on the tracks. It's going (laughs) to fall off about 15 times in the next year. And my job is just to make sure that it gets back on the tracks and that the decision makers that be have the information they need to make the right decisions. One thing threatening the legitimacy of the entire psychedelic therapy project is the recent allegations of sexual and psychological abuse against certain members of the underground psychedelic guide community. As Michael Pollan pointed out in episode one of this miniseries, such problems are not new, nor are they confined to psychedelic therapy. Nevertheless, such ethical violations are certainly relevant to Eckert and those creating the licensing system in Oregon. 
One of the great benefits of a legally regulated program is consumer safety because you have licensed practitioners who are trained at approved programs and pass a licensing exam and also adhere to a code of ethics and also answer to a licensing board. And that board can register complaints and properly investigate those complaints. So instead of these things kind of playing out in the media or not at all, Mm -hmm. you can actually see this come through an investigation through a licensing board. And I think that's really key for accountability. Yeah, I definitely can speak (laughs) for the group and say that trial by public opinion is not uh, (laughs) a reliable method. Absolutely. You are the living proof of the extreme of how wrong that can go. And I don't think it's good in any form. I think that the more actual accountability and real investigation. And and this is all part of coming above boards. This is part of creating a framework that allows this to have systems underneath it that can address these kind of issues. Yeah, Amanda had the insight that the power of therapy of any kind is deeply tied in with vulnerability. You have to be vulnerable to a therapist, whatever kind of therapist they are, if there's going to be any real psychological healing or breakthroughs. But you're the expert here. Does that ring true for you? That's absolutely true. As a therapist, you know, this is a key discussion and part of our training, and it should be part of training for psychedelic therapy as well. You really have to mature into this role, and there needs to be oversight as that maturation happens, right? Not only to avoid negative situations, but to make this program all that it can be, because you're absolutely right that Therapy in general is a fragile process. And then you add psychedelics to the mix and you're intentionally going into a very vulnerable state. And that's why it works, right? It loosens up consciousness to allow for things to emerge and for new flexibility. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. So we're very mindful of that in Oregon. Personally, we take any allegations of sexual and psychological abuse during therapy very seriously. But to us, that is just further reason to legalize and regulate what is currently happening in the underground community. Not everyone sees it that way. Lately, there's been some journalistic efforts, both in print and in podcast, that aim to reveal the dark corners of the psychedelic renaissance and take such stories of abuse as evidence that the culture has yet again recklessly embraced these powerful and dangerous substances. Is there something to that? Or is it the inevitable backlash when psychedelics have received so much glowing press of late? We'll leave you to decide when you reach the end of this miniseries. What we will say is that powerful experiences on psilocybin do seem to make people true believers in the transformational power of psychedelics. I know it's not a panacea, and I agree with you there. (laughs) Except. (laughs) He's also like, but mushrooms would fix everything. (laughs) I have have had the thought that if if everyone just had one good experience with psilocybin, like so many of our societal problems would melt. Political tribalism would melt. It's interesting how common people who have these peak experiences come out and report things like love is the <laughs> is the core truth of the universe, right? Why do they have that experience? Why is that such a common thing? And why is it so deeply understood? And it's hard to say what the psychedelic experience is about because it seems that the mystical type experience in the research is correlated with the changes people are making, 
So in other words, the more intense the experience on this mystical scale, the more likely that person is going to make positive change in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether it's addressing their depression or addictions or whatever they're looking at. And so what is a mystical type experience? Well, they broke it down into these different elements. Like you said, a sense of unity, a sense of ego dissolution, basically unity consciousness, a sense of sacredness, a sense that I think they call it a noetic quality, meaning mm-hmm. it feels more real than anything else in that moment. In other words, you come out of the experience with that sense that, okay, let's say you realize that love is the glue of everything. Well, that felt in that moment like such a truth that you're able to bring it out of the experience and you want to like understand how you felt that so deeply and it mm. makes an impact. So in that sense, all these elements are ground shifting for people. If you really experience it at a level where it's made a deep impression and you carry it back into your life and then you have trained facilitators to sit with you and explore what it means yeah. to you and it becomes part of your worldview. Yeah. You know, I don't think the psychedelic experience by itself is going to shift people in general. It fades away like an amazing dream fades away unless you do the work to bring it into this world and create a practice from what you learned. So I would say that psychedelic therapy, if enough people embrace it, will make an impact on a social scale. Enough to counteract the forces of Twitter and social media. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of the Hail Mary. You know, Sheree and I <laughs> set out to make a change, and we're like, it seems so impossible. What could actually yeah. have some influence? You know, I think it's a spoke in the wheel of change, but I think it's sort of central because it goes right into our consciousness, right into our center. So I think it's important. And it's at the center where everything most important to us resides, our sense of self the grief that we carry for things and people we've lost. I know that psilocybin has been shown to have very positive impacts on how people grieve. And I'm curious if Mm. your own process in dealing with this sudden loss has been augmented by your experiences with psilocybin. Wow. Thank you for the question. Wow. I will disclose for, I guess this is first time publicly like i did do a psilocybin experience not long ago to address some of the grieving you know when sheree passed it's just i cry every day i'm very connected to it i I don't feel like i'm avoiding the process in any way so i wasn't looking for some kind of breakthrough but you know i thought i'd go there after a while this is a couple months later and i got a grieving experience no doubt Mm. And it was amazing in the sense that I had my computer open and I had some pictures of her on the screen as I was coming into the experience. And I could look into her face and subtly she seemed a little bit animated, you know, like I could kind of see the life in her and it just started opening my connection with her. And then I could really feel a resonance with her. I don't pretend to understand anything. And when You know, after Shri died, that just became real clear to me. Like, I really don't know anything. (laughs) But the best that I can come up with is that the forces that animated Shri, the cosmic forces that came through her and made her who she was, exist. They are part of everything. And they get articulated through human beings as values and energies, 
intentions, but they come out of the, the field. And so when Cherie died, and people are, have had deep grieving processes know this, you're, you're still in a relationship. You're in a relationship with the field, wherever she dissipated into. And sometimes you can, through your own resonance and memory, and, and I started thinking about the word memory and like recollection, remembering and like thinking literally like collecting again, mm. membering again, right? Mm. It's like an internal process. You're pulling the forces back out of the field and bringing them to you. And of course you can't bring her back, but you feel that resonance, right? Well, on psilocybin, it was extremely strong and I felt her presence. And I remember at one point I said, I feel you here. And I'm like, could you just come, come real close? I want to feel you. Mm. Come close so I can feel you. And then internally, I felt just like my heart open up, like physically. Like mm. It was a physical feeling that just came in through me. And I opened up and suddenly I'm bawling. Right? Mm. And I can just feel her so close. And it was very therapeutic for a lot of reasons, but one was that I feel like in that state, I was able to say things to her that I didn't have a chance to say. She died very suddenly, just one night. And yeah, I think I'll just leave it there, but I was able to process a lot that night. And yeah, so stepping back from that and just looking at it kind of more objectively as a therapeutic modality for grieving, I can speak firsthand that it worked for me. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Whew. It is it's heavy I mean, stuff. <laughs> it's heavy and I think of it as existential medicine. Mm -hmm. Whether you're grieving or just coming to grips with your own life, mm -hmm. your own ability to stand on your own two feet, your ability to suffer. And I, Amanda, I know you deeply understand the anxiety around being in the world and feeling helpless and making meaning. This is the depth of this experience. And that's why I think it's such an important modality. It gets back to what we were saying about it's the experience itself that's the therapeutic agent. Right. And therefore, it's putting the power back in you as a person in the world experiencing anxiety of being alive mm -hmm. and learning how to encounter that and to ultimately embrace your human condition. For all the talk of depression and anxiety and addiction and DSM-categorizable mental health issues that psilocybin may help alleviate, there's this broader and older and more spiritual framing of this substance the experience of consuming it and what its purpose is, which is perhaps to come face to face with what it means to be a human. Stay tuned for part four of The Fungus Effect, where we speak with anthropologist Bia Lavace, the executive director of the Chacruna Institute, about the indigenous history and practice of psychedelic plant medicines. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And please, help us out with a five-star rating and write a nice review. We read every single one. I even, believe it or not, answer my DMs. If you have something nice to say, we'd love to hear it. 
This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Fun fact, for every hour of labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering. What keeps us going? Coffee. Coffee. So if you're enjoying labyrinths, please buy us a coffee. Head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation. Thanks for getting lost with us.